For many university students, the essay is perhaps the most dreaded assignment of all. But could a shift in a choice of words be all it takes to improve our marks? My name is Paige, and in this episode of Beyond the Paper, I'll be talking to Cassie Liade, lecturer in the Department of Linguistics, about her research on the application of grammatical metaphors in academic writing. Welcome to the show, Cassie. Thank you, Paige. So you've been a part of the development of the Macquarie University Longitudinal Learning Corpus, and your study actually utilised a lot of the data that was collected in this corpus. So what kind of data was actually used for the corpus? Well, we have a unit here at Macquarie called Academic Communication, and a few years ago I was teaching on this unit. Um, It's targeted towards first-year undergraduate students who are entering the university and really just need to learn how to adapt to the different what we call genres of academic writing and speaking, so giving a presentation or writing a persuasive essay versus a report or a reflection. And we developed the corpus starting in 2014, Um, So we recruited students through the units, and so we wanted to capture them in their first semester, so right away when they enter university, because that gave us a baseline of, okay, how are you starting out? And our students are quite diverse. Um, About 40% of them um, speak English as an additional language, so it's not their first language. Um, So we have a really diverse, I think it's over 40 languages represented. Um, But we also wanted to compare, because there's often a lot of research into those English as additional language students versus those who have grown up in Australia their whole lives. But we also recognize that maybe they have some challenges when they are writing or speaking for academic purposes. So we collect um, those who agreed to the study, of course. Um, We collect their texts through that academic communication unit. And then we collect their texts from all the other units they were enrolled in that semester and then all their subsequent semesters. So we now have almost 9,000 assignments. from I think it's around 400 or so students um, over the years. And that helps us just to track how do they develop um, their academic discourse? How do they develop the way they speak and write? Um, Well, actually, it's all writing um, in university. And how do they develop over that time? So that's what the corpus was about and who the students are in it. I guess what we should be asking is, what actually is a grammatical metaphor? It's it's like, um, I always explain it um, with language, it's like we have a toolbox available to us and some are, you might have a screwdriver or um, a hammer and that's, that's a linguistic resource that you can use. But a grammatical metaphor is like a power tool. It's one you can plug in and we'll do 10 things at once. And so a grammatical metaphor... Is just a fancy way of saying. It's a way of um, playing with the language and organizing it to create more dense um, logical meanings. So um, I always give the example, um, because I was sick, I had to turn in my paper late. So here we have, if you look at it linguistically, you have two clauses related hypotactically because relates them together. So you have that cause in it. Um, And that's how we might speak to one another. And that's completely appropriate in informal interactions. But if we start to write, if we start to um, nail words down on the paper, we don't have a lot of context in the interaction that we have. So we have to um, kind of make it a bit more condensed and formal, and that's what academic writing is. So you can do the first step would be, due to my illness, I had to submit my paper late, 
or um, my illness led to the late submission of my paper, or you could get really, really dense, which we do in some contexts, and say something like, the result of my illness was the late submission of my paper. And so you have these kind of different variations or clines towards more condensed language or less condensed language, which you can sort of map on a formal, informal Klein as well. So grammatical metaphor um, is different than lexical metaphor. Lexical metaphor is the one you study in literary um, studies. And that's where um, one item signifies another. Grammatical metaphor is one grammatical function signifies another grammatical function. So it's as simple as taking a verb like achieve and making it into a noun, achievement, or an adjective, achievable. Um, what do you think you could take it into an adverb? No, can't do it. But there's, you know, variations of what you can do with different language. And when you do that, you're just playing with language to create new meanings. And when you're writing, you kind of have to do that so that you can move your argument forward. Otherwise, you know, you'd be writing 10,000 word essays that could be expressed in a couple thousand words to get the same ideas across. Yeah, so it's sort of making it more succinct and making it sort of more precise, but at the same time, keeping that same scope and your same argument moving forward. Yeah. Okay. So why would you look at grammatical metaphors in academic writing? Why are they so important to students to use? Well, they're... they're, they're powerful. They, they achieve lots of functions at once. So, you know, when we look at academic writing, we look at how does it, how is it distinct from everyday writing, text messages, emails, etc. Um, and we, we see different things like lexical variation. Um, we use different words. And when we write for academic purposes, um, there's the academic word list, which tends to be much more um, information packaged into certain words. And the same principle applies to grammatical metaphor, but it's not just that we um, use these more, let's call them sophisticated words, um, but we also, the way we put them together creates meanings that are more sophisticated as well. Um, so we can create a logical argument. We can... Um, create cohesion across the text. These are things that we value in an academia and the university, um, but we often don't teach people how to do it. We just kind of expect them. So I always tell my students, you know, if you've ever gotten feedback on your writing that's, oh, it's too wordy or too verbose or um, not formal enough, what you all, everything you need to know is grammatical metaphor. And if you can use it appropriately, then you're going to achieve much higher marks. Analyzing these texts to find these grammatical metaphors and how they're being used, that, that sounds quite a difficult process. So how did you measure the effectiveness of them in the essays that you were looking at? So I looked at them um, in two angles. So when I did my PhD many, many years ago, I um, developed a framework, is what I say. So it's basically an approach to analyzing grammatical metaphors. So a lot of the research out there, when it investigates grammatical metaphor, just looks at instances. So how many of them exist? And you can do that quite efficiently through what's called corpus linguistics, because you can actually feed it into the software and they pick it out for you. Um, And I use a corpus assisted methodology. So I, it helps me find them, but I'm not just looking at them. Okay. There was X number of them. I want to see how do they impact a text? Because as the findings of this paper showed, um, it's not just about frequency. It's about how they're actually used. So 
The quantitative side is how many occur in the text, um, and you do kind of have to tease it out. So typically, grammatical metaphor studies are pretty small scale, like this one only has 10 texts in it, um, because you actually have to go back and look at every instance to make sure it's actually an instance of grammatical metaphor and not just that word existing there. So it's not, you know, not every, I think there's an example in this paper where um, the word is access, and we have access to something um, can be a grammatical metaphor, but the access of something would be the more succinct way to use it. So you have to kind of go back and make a decision based on certain tests that you apply. Um, so that's the quantitative. And then you look at variation. So a text isn't going to be very successful if it just uses the same word over and over again. So if you're if your word, again, is, is achievement, then you just say achievement 50 times. It's not like the text is going to achieve all that much, ironically. Um, so that's quantitative. And then qualitatively, so we look at the quality with which it's deployed. Um, we look at how it creates cohesion, how it um, condenses meanings together. So compacting meanings into fewer words, into a nominal group, we say. And... Um, how it creates um, cause and effect networks. So how does it create or accumulate meanings across a text to um, build an argument? I think there was one finding I had a little bit of trouble getting my head around. So you found that lower scoring texts, they had a number of, uh, a higher number of clauses in them. And you said that they were therefore sort of more intricate compared to a higher scoring text. But at the same time, you also said that the lower scoring texts, they had less control of the language. So how does that sort of work? What does that mean? So what I found in this study and other studies is um, low scoring texts or those that are considered typically more informal or more wordy. Um, what we typically do is we reflect the way we speak. So it's not a, you know, it's a bit of an apples to oranges, but Generally, the way we speak is we string together a lot of clauses, um, typically in sequence. So I did this, and then I did that, and then I did this. Whereas when we write things, we typically take fewer clauses and we create cause and effect networks. It's because we're arguing for something. Most of academic writing is arguing. It's persuasion, trying to convince someone of something. Um, so when you have a lot of clauses within a single sentence... What you're doing is actually creating this grammatical intricacy or um, complexity, really, um, that's not valued because it's just taking a lot of clauses and putting them all together. And we do that all the time when we're speaking. Um, but when we're actually writing something, we want a thing related to another thing. So we want to have X equals Y. So one thing I find fascinating in corpus linguistics, so we can analyze heaps and heaps and heaps of written texts. And the most prevalent verb in written language, do you know what it is? Any guesses? Ooh, you have to tell me. Question. You'll have to tell me. <laughs> it's, it's the two-letter verb is. Wow. This <laughs> is that. And that's because when we're writing, we want something, something to relate to something. We want something to be defined as something. Um, and that's, that's what we value in, in academic discourse. We want something to relate to something else. And the most common relation isn't time or condition, it's cause. I guess it's a bit of condition, but it's that cause and effect. So this leads to this or this is the result of that. Um, so that kind of language is what's most valued. 
And so actually, when you think about it, it's counterintuitive. We think we have to use more words when we're writing or are writing for academic purposes, but actually fewer words is more valued. And we think we got to, you know, put lots and lots of clauses in a sentence, but actually the most powerful clause is the simple sentence, which is one independent clause. Um, and so if we focus on that and kind of strip away all that other things, what we're actually doing is compacting more meanings into fewer things. And the most successful language we can use are nouns. Um, that's another key distinction between the way we speak and the way we write is the way we speak is dynamic. We talk to each other. We have a context. We communicate. You know, we can point to things or relate back to things. But when we write, it's um, it's it's an anonymous almost practice. So we don't see each other. I have to write something and send it to you and hope that you interpret it the way I want you to interpret it. Um, so I always say you're kind of nailing words to a page. Well, the words that sit on a page best are those that are nouns, that are static, not dynamic. So the more meanings we can compact into nouns and express as nouns, the more successful they will be in, well, not just academic contexts, but in a lot of professional contexts as well. Um, so we're able to say more when we use a noun or an elaborated noun group than if we just used, you know, a lot of sentences to say the same thing. Okay. So less clauses, but more nouns. That's yep. the main. Fewer yep. clauses, more nouns, and more simple um, clauses. Yeah. That's a good thing for students to know. Yes. <laughs> yes. So overall, um, what were the main findings of your study? Can comparing the highest scoring and the lowest scoring groups? Yeah, so we had five high distinction students and five who barely passed. <laughs> um, and we wanted to make sure that they didn't just barely pass because they were late or something else. It was, you know, just looking at um, the length of the text was pretty comparable, although notably this, the higher scoring texts were somewhat a little bit longer. Um, the key distinction was when you do the quantitative, and I've found this in other studies, is there's not that big of a distinction. So the number of times they use these grammatical metaphors. And I should clarify, I'm only looking at one type of grammatical metaphor. It's actually a huge thing. So I'm just looking at what's called experiential um, grammatical metaphor. Um, the way they use those, um, sorry, the frequency with which they use those is comparable, although a little bit more frequent in the higher scoring texts. The, the key difference is how they use them. So low scoring students typically just throw them in. Um, and high-scoring students use them to create cohesion or to build an argument or, you know, something along these lines. So I would say the most powerful way they use them is what we call um, anaphoric reconstruel. Um, in, um, in English, the first thing we say in a sentence is called the theme. And typically, when we're trying to organize something, it's a given. It's something you already know. And then we tell you something new about it. And then we tell you something you already know and tell you something new about it. And you kind of create this zigzag cohesion across a text. Um, and grammatical metaphor is the most powerful way to do that. So you might say, you know, I think there's a good example if I can go to my notes here. Um, ah, yes. So... When grammatical metaphor is used appropriately, it affects the way language is condensed within the text. Next sentence, these condens condensation effects contribute to da-da-da-da. So what you do there is you take the, um, the 
unpacked meanings, um, condensed and aff- affect something, and then you create it into a grammatical metaphor and put it right there in theme position. So you've created this cohesion. And um, it's a bit like inception to your reader because you're, you're kind of luring them into what you believe without making it, this is the most important point, or um, don't forget this, or, you know, it's creating um, a literary effect of emphasis there um, in a really subtle way, but in a really powerful way. So what we found is the um, high-scoring students did it more than twice as often as the low students. Um, actually, I don't think, the low students, no, my, sorry, I don't think the low students did it at all, did they? Uh, they only did it the reverse, so they did the unpacking later on. So um, I think that's pretty significant, is the the high-scoring students used it to build cohesion. Um, and I have to say, people who mark academic texts, it's all about cohesion, formality, clarity, um, and and so it, it creates, it, it accumulates across a text to build an argument. So I think that was probably the most significant finding. So it seems that you can't just throw a grammatical me- metaphor in. You have to actually apply it properly. You have to use it effectively. So do you have any suggestions, I guess, as to how students could improve their use of these grammatical metaphors? And even how could you maybe further study these and look at these for future research? Yeah. So one of the interesting things I found um, anecdotally when I was teaching and researching this, and I think I talk about it in the discussion, is um, one of the one of the risks of teaching students grammatical metaphors is they just want to throw a bunch of them in. Um, and then they do what we call overcondensation. So, you know, um, the example I had here was, um, allowing more people into the country will lead to an overcrowding effect, leaving the Australian population with housing shortages and wait, that was yeah, and drastic implications to the availability of gainful employment. And when you read that, it sounds good at first glance, but then you realize that doesn't actually make any sense. And, and that's the key. Um, so when I'm teaching grammatical metaphor as a concept, I always teach the concept of packaging and unpackaging. So can I pack it up and can I unpack it if I need to? So um, if I can't unpack, you know, um, the availability of gainful employment, I can. I can say that. I can say that people are able to be employed gainfully and there's there, it is available to them. But when you start putting it with implications and shortages and such, it just, wait, does X lead to Y or does Y lead to X? Or, you know, there seems to be a curveball Z in here. You know, so you just, you start looking at it. I don't really have a clear grasp of that. So um, I'm always telling my students, you know, if you have grammatical metaphor and you've used it there, can you unpack it as well? And, and if you can and it's clear, then you're probably okay. Um, but in terms of doing it, it's, it's like with any linguistic tool, you just have to practice it. Um, but I do think it's important to teach because we, um, we just expect students to do it. Um, I would guess that 99% of the population has never heard the term grammatical metaphor or even the most common form of it, nominalization. Um, but, um, it's actually really helpful. And if you kind of know a few tricks of language and then just play with it and maybe, you know, workshop it a little bit, then you actually come up with some really interesting meanings. And, um, you know, a lot of people look at it 
in a negative way because they, they examine grammatical metaphor in um, political discourse or news discourse. And we can use it, you know, to obfuscate or, you know, I think the, there's a really good example of the two newspapers who used like the um, the U.S. killed 100 Iraqi civilians or, you know, there were casualties in Iraq today. Actually, reporting objectively, it's, it's actually the same meaning, but we can use it as a powerful way to create um, or to put forward our own agenda. So um, that's a negative way, perhaps, of using it, but we can use it in really powerful ways to get our ideas across in the classroom. So just keep practicing it and keep moving forward with it. Yeah, and know what yeah. it is, yeah. know examples of it and play with it and keep using it as much as possible. I think that's about all we've got time for today. Thank you so much, Cassie, for joining me today. I think that academic writing is something that is so important for all students to know and to keep working towards improving their skills. Um, so, yeah, it's been great having you. Thank you. I'm Paige, and this has been Beyond the Paper. Thanks for listening, and be sure to look out for more episodes. <laughs>